Hi, Church. Um, I'm Tom, uh, for those that don't know me, and I have the great pleasure to be talking to you today um, from Nehemiah. Um, it is a great pleasure. We'll be looking at Nehemiah 5 today. And before we do that, I just wanted to pray um, because I think it's really important that we seek God in worship as we've had with Chris, which is amazing, but we also seek God in the Word as well. So, Heavenly Father God, we do come before you and we just thank you that you are great. You are awesome. We thank you that you are writing your law upon our hearts for those that love you. And we thank you that we get to know you more and more by your revealed word in your Bible. So I do pray, Lord, that you would just be with us in this time. You will bless us and you will just give us greater revelation of you and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. So I hope you have been enjoying the Nehemiah series up until now and you found it very positive, very challenging. Last week, Rob did a really great job of catching us up in the story. Um, so the walls are being rebuilt and the people are, were facing opposition from the nations around them. But they continue to work, they continue to strive to finish those walls. Before we actually get into Nehemiah 5, I just wanted to point some things out. Um, the story of Nehemiah echoes the same pattern that we see in the book of Ezra. So Ezra was a book before Nehemiah, um, but in the ancient times, Ezra and Nehemiah actually were one book combined together. Tom explained that to us a few weeks ago. So we see through Ezra and Nehemiah three stories that have, a, have the similar or same pattern. What do I mean by this? So Nehemiah, he's leading uh, the return of the exiles, um, but this is actually the third return. Before him, there were two previous returns of exiles, and their stories pan out in a really strange, anticlimactic way. They look like they've got these grand ideas and that they're going to be making this great change, but they end up in a position of unfulfillment and a bit low at the end of it, very anticlimactic. You would expect, actually, that these people were returning off the back of what we see in the prophets, the messages that were given to God's people at the time whilst they were in exile, that they were going to go back and rebuild the temple that they were going to have a dwelling place where God was going to be in their midst and that they were going to be a blessing, God was going to be a blessing not only to the Jews but also to the nations around. We see this message is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 4. We see it in Isaiah 35, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. But this doesn't pan out for the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. In the book of Ezra, we meet first Zerubbabel. He returns with this great plan to rebuild the altar and to rebuild the temple. He rebuilds the temple and the expectation is really high that God is going to descend upon the temple like he did with Solomon's temple. But then it's really anticlimactic because he doesn't descend. And then we meet Ezra about 60 years later. He's a Torah scholar, and he comes back, and he's got this really great idea that he's going to teach the people the Torah. He wants spiritual renewal for the people. 
but only some of the people respond. So it's really anticlimactic. These people aren't responding to the message. Both Zerubbabel and Ezra have these grand ideas, but they fall short in the end in low places. So Nehemiah picks up 13 years after Ezra's return. He leads the third return of the exiles, and as we've been hearing, he's there to rebuild the walls. They face the opposition and they face delays, as we've heard, but the people prefer, um, the people worked through and followed the vision that they were building towards. Then we get to chapter 5. Now, chapter 5 is a breakup of all the work that we've seen up until now in Nehemiah. So let's read. Let's read from verse 1. Nehemiah 5, verse 1 says, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Now we could continue, but I actually want to stop there because this is incredible. If you really see the impact of what this is saying, we can see it um, shadowed in, for example, Genesis 18.21, where it talks about the great outcry that God hears about the nation of Sodom and Gomorrah, the two cities that were in great sin. There is a great outcry against those cities. And the same is also seen in Exodus 2.23. God's people cry out to him because of the oppression of the Egyptians. But in Nehemiah, this outcry is not aimed at an external oppressor. So we saw that in there. It's against their Jewish brothers. So the oppression that the people are experiencing is from their fellow Jewish brothers. The people are crying out to God because of this oppression. But what is their complaint? So let's read on. So Nehemiah 5, verses 2 to 5. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not our power to help it. For other men have fields and are vineyards. So I want to sum up the two complaints that I see from this. The first one is the wealthy Jews were charging the poor Jews interest on loans and mortgages. Now, I don't want to lose that point because in our modern world, we have mortgages and we have loans and various things like that. We're going to look at the impact of that in this ancient time. The second point is the poor brothers were selling their sons and daughters as slaves to the wealthy so they could afford to live. They say because of this famine, 
Um, they're so worried that they might even die. They're, they're nervous of dying. There was a famine at this time which caused the poor to be poorer. And possibly the men who were meant to be working in the fields were being called to go and build the walls. So the crops were not being tended. The plants were not being grown. And they weren't being looked after. This complaint undoes the work that Ezra tried to teach the people when looking at the Torah 13 years previous. They had forgotten what it said in Leviticus 25, 35 to 43. And we're going to read that and just see this parallel here. If your brothers become poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brothers may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Cana and to be your God. If your brothers become poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you and he and his children with him and go back to his own clan and return to the profession of his father. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over them ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. So Nehemiah, he knows this scripture. He knows it's been forgotten and he responds. He doesn't like the oppression of this people. We see in Nehemiah 5, verses 6 to 8, his response. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charge against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are enacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly there and said to them, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word. So this situation is full of irony. The people have been in exile in Persia and Babylon, and they were enslaved by those foreign nations that took them away. Now they've been redeemed back to Jerusalem, and what is happening to them? They are being enslaved by their own leaders. If you remember, one of the reasons that God sent out the nation of Israel into exile originally was due to the strong 
oppressing the weak. This is seen in Isaiah chapter 5 and chapters 8 to 10. So why are the people in Nehemiah acting like this? Well, Nehemiah 5 verse 9 tells us. He says in verse 9, So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? The people don't truly know who God is. Nehemiah shows us that they are not walking in the fear of God. We saw this same rationale in Leviticus 25. It's actually in there twice. It says, fear your God. Now, I do want to clarify this point because sometimes uh, the fear of God can be horribly misunderstood. It can be avoided because it can feel uncomfortable. But this is super important for us. How can Nehemiah say in chapter 1 of his book, of Nehemiah, in verse 11, he says he delights to fear God's name? That seems really paradoxical. How can Isaiah 11, when talking about Jesus in verses 2 to 3, say this? And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight, Jesus' delight, shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by his eyes or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Now, let me clarify this fear of God. If you are not in the family of God, he is terrifying. Look what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah and to Egypt. Their sin was dealt with harshly. They were destroyed. Because if we are not in God, we are God's enemy. There is no refuge from his wrath. We are slaves to the sins that we have. We have no help or no hope in this world. God is terrifying for anyone that is not in him. And when Jesus returns and God judges the living and the dead, they will have no response or argument that will satisfy God's righteous anger against their sin. This is so important. But for those that are in God, there is hope. Thank you very much. Hallelujah to that. There is hope for those that are in God. God is our sustainer. He's our redeemer. He's our refuge. We have peace in his care. And rejection is replaced by enjoyment and joy and security in him. We have come to God not in a fear that trembles at our state of the rejection of him, but we come in thankfulness and reverence and awe at the amazing redemption we have that is not our own. It's undeserved. 
But we can have access to that. We remember who we were before we were in Christ. We remember our lives before. As explained earlier, we were enemies of God. And this should motivate us to worship. It should motivate us to worship of God's name and thankfulness for who he is. It leads us to run in amazement to him. That we are sons and daughters in grace and mercy. It empowers us to act differently. And it stirs us up to tell others about how great God is and how dire it is without him. It leads us to act out that great command that we see in Matthew 22, to love God with all our heart and to love our neighbours. We are empowered to flee from the sins of our lives and to get away from them, to reject them, to overcome them in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. We live in God's awesome majesty and his holiness and his justice. This should be what we desire. And when our faith is tested by fire, it is seen to be genuine. 1 Peter 1.7 says, So that the tested genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested in fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. I love this. Jonathan Parnell, the lead pastor of Cities Church, explains it in this way. When there's no fear of God, no awe of his sovereignty, no respect of his power, and no grasp of his will and the ground he works for his covenant people, then there's no basis for us to truly love others. And then we see in Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We should come to God in awe, reverence, thankfulness, and mindfulness to avoid having a cavalier, disinterested, take-it-or-leave-it stance when we come to God. But this exchange of who we were and who we are in God, it costs something. We see a picture of this in Nehemiah 5, verses 10 to 19. We see the response that the leaders and Nehemiah has to realizing that they need to walk in the fear of God. So let's read it. Let's go back to Nehemiah 5, verses 10 to 19. It says, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. 
Let us abandon this enacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been enacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also took out the folds of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And people did as they promised. It led them to worship. It led them to praise the mighty name of God. And then we get this beautiful bit here about Nehemiah from verse 14, about his generosity. And it says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on the walls and we acquired no land. And all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, beside those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember, for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. The poverty of the people is covered by the great generosity of Nehemiah and the leaders. They show mercy and grace to the people who they live, uh, who then live off their generosity. They have taken them from death, the fear of famine, and given them life. This is a picture of the generosity that we see that Jesus gives freely. We see in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verse 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And then we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him, seated. He seated us in with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the coming age, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before that we should walk in them. It is far greater to be in God. It is far greater for us to respond in prayer and worship at what he has done and what he has rescued us from. If you don't know Jesus today, you have an opportunity to come into a relationship with God through Jesus, through his death on the cross for your sin, through his resurrection power. You can today ask for forgiveness of those things that separate you from God. And through Jesus, through faith in him, you can receive salvation. Let's pray. And then I want us to respond in worship. Thank you, God, for the great exchange that you accomplished at the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that you paid the price so we could be accepted and loved by God. Help us to remember that we were once lost, but we are now found. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So I did feel that um, we could respond with a song. Um, It's a song that I just think really speaks about the greatness of God and the awesomeness of his mercy and his grace. So you can find this on YouTube. It's uh, part of the New Day album from 2015. And uh, it's called Greater Than It All. So... In your homes, respond in worship, respond in prayer, respond in love, and let's worship together.